And welcome to another episode of the Game Theory Podcast, your show about strategy, competition, and decision-making. I am one of your hosts, Nick. I'm the other of your hosts, Chris. Hey, Chris. Say, uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about aliens, and we'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to update everyone on the World Chess Championships. We had our chess cast recently, and uh, the chess championships are happening right now. Have you been paying attention to those at all? Uh, yeah, I've been keeping track. I uh, I feel like it's kind of decided at yeah. this point. Yeah, it's a little bit out of Nepo's hands, and I think we all kind of expected that. But man, it's just brutal to watch play yeah. in real time. Yeah. So there was a couple. So they play like uh, they they played ten was today. I didn't really see what happened. I imagine that it was a draw, but um, they played one of the best games in World Championship history. It was the longest game in World Championship history. It was. Like eight and a half hours. It was like toward the theoretical limit, Chris. They were down to one minute, and that's crazy. Like eight hours, eight and a half hours. If my company's listening, is longer than I worked today. <laughs> eight and a half. If they're listening, <laughs> right? It's like there was an expo at the championships. They closed it all down or whatever. But then the uh, Nepo, the challenger, he had a blunder recently that was like bad. It was very. Did you see it? Yeah, I did. You're, you're talking in that position where he had the bishop on yep. B7, yep. and he played C5. Trapped that allowed it. Carlson to play C6 and just trap the bishop. And so now all of a sudden in this in this early end game, we quickly progress to a late end game because Nepo just has one less piece yep. than Carlson. Yeah, and like he he did throw some some shit at the wall at the at the end there to be like maybe I can get get a knight and only be down a pawn, but even then that's bad and. And then uh, there's a gif of Carlson's reaction to the move. He sat back down and he looked at the position because Nepo got up and walked away and Carlson had been walking around. And then Carlson sits back down and he's like, uh, no. That yeah, is couldn't not, believe it. Yeah, it's not a, not a great situation there. But you can review all of that. The World Championships have probably decided that's how she blows. Um, so something else I wanted to talk about. I forgot that Christmas is coming and I haven't ordered presents and apparently there's like a shipping and resources issue. Yeah, it doesn't sound very I mean I'm not I'm I'm no US Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg over here but yeah. it seems to me that the situation is getting pretty urgent especially if you haven't done your shopping yet. Yeah, no, you your gift might be coming from an airport. But there's good stuff in there. There's Johnson uh, whatever those things are, like there's, there's like duty free. You can get Johnny Walker Blue in an airport. That's totally a good enough yeah. gift for you, 100. percent All right, Chris, I want to talk about aliens and whether or not they exist. We're also going to review like our theory of aliens and how aliens are represented in culture. This is not a podcast with any sort of proof or identity or I, I, any information about aliens possibly existing. But there are people much smarter than us who didn't rush area 51 who theorized that if they are out there here are some logical arguments to them possibly probably existing yeah so i, I think the first place to start is the blink 182 classic aliens aliens exist yes tom DeLong, t noted reasonable person yes and his thesis i posit is correct aliens do exist uh nick there's actually a really cool way of trying to figure out whether that's actually mathematically a reality for us. Okay. So it turns out there's a pretty long history of people trying to like use modern day science to try to identify the number of alien civilizations out there. I mean, you've heard of ancient astronaut theory, yep. that garbage that's on 
History Channel. History Channel on yeah. a historical channel. Yeah. It, all that's nonsense. The real business of trying to identify alien civilizations has actually been codified in a pretty simple formula. Okay. So, enter 1961 at the West Virginia uh, Green Bag, or what, what, well, what's it called? Well, there's a bar? I've lost the page, bar? Nick. I've lost the page. Wait, are we... West Virginia is it a bar in West Virginia? No, it's not a it's not a bar in West Virginia. It's the Green Bank, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory Green Bank in Green Bank, West that's Virginia. The one. Yep, that's you're welcome. The one. Yes, yes, that's the one. Mm. So apparently, like sixty years ago, a uh, a, a U.S. astrophysicist uh, named Frank Frank Drake. Uh, was kind of coming up with an idea before he stepped into like a, a talk there. Uh, and it was at a conference that was described as one that was about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, the abbreviation there is SETI or SETI. Uh, and you can you can Google the term SETI and there's like a whole foundation and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but Drake basically took a look at a bunch of different astrophysical, biological, psychological, social factors and put them together in one neat little mathematical formula to determine roughly how many civilizations there are in the Milky Way at a given time. Okay, so what was the point of this? Is just like trying to figure out how many things could theoretically exist. That's like just like the basic question? Well, yeah, and it, and it goes a little bit farther than that. Uh, it, you know, it, it purports to yield the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. And what that means, if you look at the factors that are in Drake's equation... Okay. It means civilizations that are sophisticated enough that they develop technology they can use to communicate. Even if they can't, like, do interstellar travel or, like, ever reach us, they can at least send out some kind of signal that we could pick up, theoretically, right. and identify who they are and where they're coming from. Okay, so I'm not a math person, as we've uh, been well documented here. I went to fun school, and so my question here is that this is all being equated based on the fact that like we know how many galaxies or stars there are, kind of, for the most part, right? People have sort of figured that out in like, the universal, the size of the universe or the plural verse or the whatever verse, or the multiverse. And But the other end of that equation is intelligent species. So are we predicating this on the fact that there's one intelligent species who has the ability to communicate and therefore like he's then deriving other, other amounts of life that could exist because there's one that we know of for sure, which is ourselves? Well, yeah, basically, I mean, a lot of the factors that go into the calculation kind of follow the path of like human progress. And, mm. and that kind of makes sense because, you know, if you consider the path of human history, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain natural influence on the way we develop technology. Like, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Like, mm. Well, yeah, I mean, we weren't born technological geniuses. We kind of had to figure things out and work our way toward developing stuff Ad like adapt or die, medicine. Baby. Water. Yeah, you're right. Adapt or die. Yeah, right. Exactly. And uh, the the formula is trying to calculate the number of civilizations just in this galaxy alone. Uh, I don't know how you would... I, I guess you would just multiply this by the number of like known galaxies in existence, but that number is literally astronomically huge. It's, it's unbelievable how many galaxies there are in the universe. Because as you said, it's, it's impossibly big. It's huge. Yeah, and like I... I so I... When the pandemic was hitting and like when working out was happening, I got really into 
podcasts and stuff, and I have vision problems every watch a show. I got like whatever. Like reading was really difficult for me for a while. One of the things I got really into were, were lectures on Audible because for fifteen dollars a month you can get Audible credits, and the best bang for your buck are something that lasts longer than a couple hours. So I get lecture series, and I got one series on twelve essential scientific concepts. One of which was uh, theoretical and particle physics. And I, that was, I re-listened to those a couple times. And I learned about the idea of like string theory and um, like the multiverse, like how many universes are there? And are we living in a simulation? And all these, these sound bites that you see, like well, there's a 20% chance we're living in a simulation. Well, that just has to do with like space time and how, how light works. However, if like we're able to calculate like the idea, like how, like boil it down to how many there could theoretically be, then it starts to become less of a theoretical situation and more of a real life situation. But there's a really important question. And this is, is some guy in the 40s had this question and he made a really, really good fucking point about this. And so far, no one has really had a good answer for his question. And his question, Chris, is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. His question is, there have to be aliens, right? But where the fuck are they? Yeah, yeah, you're talking about uh, old Enrico Fermi, mm. who I think was the the last Renaissance man probably on Earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy knew everything. He had just so much knowledge in his brain. He was actually the guy who was responsible for overseeing humankind's first ever man-made nuclear reactor that was like running sustainably and not for like a short period of time. Like he designed that and oversaw it. Uh, it if, if you're looking for the history there, it was built under a squash court at the University of Chicago. And they just had a bunch of really cool, really smart people around, and Fermi was, like, in charge of that. So this is a smart guy who's coming up with this question. And, like, his point is that the universe is so big. I mean, there are so many stars just in our galaxy alone, and then there are so many more galaxies out there, and there's so much more space and so many planets on each of the stars and each of the millions of galaxies. It's, it's crazy how big the numbers are. So there have to be other alien species out there. But he's got a point. We don't know where they are because to date, as far as any of us know in the public, there's not any evidence that aliens have tried to, to contact us. Uh, Nick, did you... Do you remember kind of the hysteria over the last, I would say, eight or nine months or so over the unidentified aerial phenomena the government was looking into? Yeah, I remember like I was getting multiple notifications from the Wall Street Journal per week. Like the government's going to issue this report. The government's going to issue this report. We're like, holy shit. Like we're going to get a thing from the government that is going to be talking about aliens. And it was a whole buildup. I think it was in July of 2020. And everyone's, it was part of like COVID conspiracies, the pandemic to distract people that there's alien life. They're trying to break it to us slowly. I saw that theory on the internet that they're, the government is purposely leaking things a little bit more gradually and a little bit more gradually so that people will kind of be numb to it. I was like, I kind of buy that. That's how I would do it. And then it came out and the, and the report was kind of, the responses were like, well, maybe kind of, but probably not. Yeah. the, the, The basic thrust of the report was that Either these events can be explained by like known aerial phenomena like like weather balloons or, you know, like weird distortions in radar signals or whatever, or we don't know what they are. Right. And there's some of them appear to not have like a terrestrial explanation, but a lot of them, a lot of the, the ones where people said that that's the case early on, it turns out, well, well you know, we just weren't analyzing it in the correct way mm-hmm. or, you know, we, we didn't have complete information. Now we do. So... Sadly, the government did not drop that bombshell on us. The people who are Russian Area 51 were doubly disappointed. 
I was actually driving downtown <laughs> once and uh, I just like turned a corner on one of the streets in, here in DC and there's this lone guy, looked like a maybe 20, 30 something guy just standing on the corner holding up a poster board and said, demand UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, transparency from the government. I thought, man, <laughs> you, you live your life. You stand up for what you believe in. This country was founded on that principle, damn it. Correct. You but take yeah, a day off of work, you spend two-thirds of it protesting, you spend the other third of it getting blackout somewhere by a, a sports complex in Washington, D.C. It's not the worst vacation I've ever heard. It's hard for me to imagine a better use of time, frankly. I mean, you're, you're an activist by day, you're a partier by night. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I am in complete agreement with you, Chris. So I, I conducted a scientific poll on my Instagram <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> as to whether or not aliens exist, and I got the following... I I, re, I I I recorded the following data. Is that the appropriate word? Data. I think yeah. Data is the data is the plural of data. Of uh, three thousand Facebook friends. Three thousand. You have three thousand Facebook. Uh, it's close to three thousand. Oh, it's like it's like thirty. I know I don't, but like they just it, it it expands. I don't know if you've seen. We'll talk about South Park later in a, like an alien episode, but it expands. Like at a certain point, like it's, it becomes algorithmic. I have like seventy mutual friends with like hundreds of thousands of people. You don't even know 70 people. I don't know well over 80% of my Facebook friends. But I have mutual friends with them in the accounts. Like, and I, I know. Like, are you, I saw are you this even thing. running your own account at this point? Oh, uh, no. Facebook won't let me delete it. There's no chance. Like, I'm no chance. quintessential to, like, the existence of the internet at this point. Like, marketing <laughs> would fall apart without my Facebook account. But I conducted research, and I had responses on Instagram and on Facebook. All respondents except for one believe that aliens exist, Chris. That's on Facebook. On Instagram. Who said, who said they don't? Uh, me and my former boss. Your former boss. Okay, well, you don't have to out your former boss, but I think your former boss uh, no, she's has not best. heard of Drake's equation, and we can talk about that. She's she is the absolute best. I suspect that she either genuinely doesn't believe that aliens exist and it's a government conspiracy, or she said no to poke fun at me. And some of the people that said yes, uh, I'm looking at Ivy League. Multiple Ivy League grads are on here. Our cousins who didn't go to college, they're on here also. So this is this transcends education levels and age groups. For sure. I also got some responses, Chris, on Instagram, and the responses were great. Uh, This one was really cool. Uh, Yes, aliens exist, but they're either 1,000 times more advanced than us and know we exist and are watching us uh, (laughs) and and are watching us and just like enjoying the show, or we're a couple hundred years more advanced from from deep space. We're we're a couple years away from deep space space travel ourselves, and we are the advanced species. Okay, that seems like a pretty common response. Yeah, I, I think so. I, th- that, that reminds me of uh, the, the first story. Like, I feel like growing up, all the alien stories were, were like in the popular imagination, were like advanced aliens come to Earth and they like kick our ass. Like right. Independence Day, Mars Attacks, the documentary Mars Attacks. <laughs> the like, documentary, it was. It was a brilliant <laughs> film. Oh, chef's kiss. It, and, it's, and it's like aliens coming to Earth and just like kicking the shit out of us. Mm. And you know, they, they kind of take over and they're our daddy from, from now on. Uh, the first time I saw a story that was the opposite of that, where it's like, okay, humans are the advanced civilization. Like right now we're, we're the threat. Uh, it was actually in, uh, in Orson Scott cards, Ender's game series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously in the first series, it's first book in the series, uh, the kids are fighting aliens because the aliens came to earth and, you know, they, they wrecked China and they, you know, wreaked all this havoc on earth. And so humanity's like, okay, we got to fight them. But in the sequel to that, they actually, he introduces stellar travel and that changes like the timelines and stuff. And so effectively the main character Ender goes like into the future because he's able to travel at, at 
light speeds and whatever. And he's in a new setting in this story and it's basically a colonization. Like humans have figured out how to do interstellar travel and they're able to go and basically just like spread, you know, the human species and, you know, colonize. Yeah. And in this story, they're on a planet of these like weird hybrid kind of like pig based aliens, but they're also like tree based. Like the biology there is very, very strange and intertwined like genetically, but humans are like the advanced species that like come from the stars and, start telling the aliens what's up. And I just thought that was a really, really interesting, but like, but this respondent has a point. I mean, it's gotta be one or the other, right? Right. Theoretically. Otherwise they're just a sitting duck and it's over any day now. Right. But there is another option, Chris. And the other option is really fascinating because, uh, and we're going to take a quick little break here so that we can talk about uh, movies and shows and have spoilers because we're going to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. Not one of the best. It is very critically acclaimed. But one of my absolute favorite movies, Arrival, we're also going to talk about South Park and the movie Contact because they pose some really fascinating questions about the relationships with and the game theory of what would happen if there was was alien contact. Yeah, uh, fascinating stories, all of the above. Uh, I, I, I think science fiction is a great way to try to talk about this stuff because we don't have any we don't have any hard data. No, no, there's no data. Okay, welcome so, back to Game Theory. And Chris, so we're going to talk about some uh, movies and the way that, it, that this is being like shown in popular media and popular culture. You talked about Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow, the actual good part of the series. <laughs> and we're, I, we teased, we're going to talk about Arrival. So we're going to give some spoilers here for people who haven't seen the movie. It's been out for uh, seven years or so. It stars Amy we're, Adams. We're way past the statute of limitations. Yes. Like, get over it. You should. But the, the, the ending of the film and the plot is very, like the realization is a very holy what the hell kind of realization. So we're going we're gonna to spoil that. We're also going to talk about South Park. South Park and Arrival, Chris, have the same general premise, which is that there's alien contact made. In South Park, the contact is made by the humans on accident. And in Arrival, the, the contact is made by the aliens. They invade Earth, and it's kind of like this weird mystery. The plot of both of the episode of South Park and the movie Arrival is that it's a test of sorts to get humanity to either unite or not. And if they, if they do unite, do they unite properly or do they not unite in a way that is disadvantageous? Like, do they not cooperate with each other and the aliens? Do they only cooperate with themselves and the aliens, or do they not cooperate with each other or the aliens at all, right? So it's, it's, it's typical game theory Nash equilibrium. And in, in Arrival, and I love this, it's great directing. It's got one of the greatest uh, theme song scores of all time. Mm-hmm. The, they, literally, they literally cite actual game theory, and it becomes a solution that's uh, it's part of the plot. I've got a clip here for you. This term... For that thing, like a like a technical term, where we make a deal and we both get something out of it. Uh, compromise. Mm, nope. No. Like, it's a competition. Yeah. But both sides end up happy. Like a win-win. More science-y than that. Yep. Uh. science, call your father. <sighs> They're divorced. Did you feel that energy? Not what you should have said to your daughter, dude. Thank you. Chris, what was the terms you're trying to say? I can't hear it. Oh. Oh, well. <laughs> That's the place you don't have your headphones. Non-zero-sum game. 
She's trying to say non-zero sum. She was saying, "Mom, what is the sciency term for like a compromise or like a win-win?" But like, what's the sciency term? And it comes to her later, non-zero sum game. She realizes that we don't have to defeat the Chinese and the Russians and ourselves. That the aliens want to unite so that they can help them. It's the same in the episode of South Park. You saw Arrival, right? You liked it. Yeah, I I did like it, and it's uh, it's actually based on a story by a really really great sci-fi author, One of the Ted goats. Chang. Yeah, yeah. So phenomenal, phenomenal story. I I think the movie was a little bit more militarized yeah. than the books, just just because I mean you you kind of need that imagery, and there, there's the whole you know security. Are they a security threat, or is this an opportunity for us? Yeah, that question always kind of comes up. But Arrival was amazing, and it 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 really required. The, the the main character to try to like develop some sense of trust for a completely alien civilization and the game theoretic question was do we treat this as like a threat is yeah. is this is this a problem for us or is this an opportunity for us to gain on our adversaries now or do we shelve all that and bank on our trust of this this alien life form being a good entity to cooperate with and kind of restructure our thinking that way. Yeah. And the spoiler alert, like it turns out Amy Adams saves the day by <laughs> learning the language time and traveling using the time. language to like rewire yeah. the thinking process. Uh, and it's that trust that pays off and like kind of solves the the plot for like the human interest angle of the plot. Yeah, so like and the, the real science fictiony part of it is actually like less about aliens and more about the way that space-time works in in language and linguistics. So she's a linguist and they're like let's get a linguist to try to talk to the aliens and ever comes and the, the, really some really fascinating fringe linguistic concepts in that movie but the, the game theoretical part of it is the aliens were coming down because they're like we are actually doomed. We're way further than you, but we can see time. You, we're doomed and we need you. So we're trying to like get you guys to stop fucking around with each other and like actually start doing stuff that is productive so that you can come save our species down the line. And she's got to communicate that and it's a really great kind of thing. Now, South Park, they had something kind of similar. So I'm going to explain to you the, uh, the plot of the, of the episode of South Park. So Randy Marsh, if you don't know South Park, it's kind of a Mayberry utopian thing in the mountains of Colorado and they have their own little universe. It's Pinewood Derby Day, Chris. And Randy Marsh, the, the dad, and Stan Lord. Marsh, the son, he's actually our father. Randy Marsh is our father. It's not a great situation. We'll talk about that at Christmas, I'm sure. So he's going to cheat on the Pinewood Derby, obviously, because he wants Stan well, to win. Well, who wouldn't? Correct. Is, so there, is there isn't there like a movie with like Frankie Muniz or something where yes. he can't like do the he's like paralyzed and he has to use a handbrake and 100%. the bad people are like oh he's cheating and Frankie Muniz is like no but I'm not yeah like because the dad makes a handbrake but he misses the older son's basketball game for like the seventh time Disney Channel original movies man that was a good one that was a good callback yeah absolute classic so Stan Marsh breaks into a uh, particle accelerator in Switzerland. <laughs> Oh, yes, CERN. CERN, the particle yeah. accelerator. That, that was that was famous, like, I think we were in, like, in high school. It might have been, like, yeah. 2009, maybe, when they were going to, like, make a singularity. Everyone was like, oh, no, the world's going to end today. Mm-hmm. I, I, I distinctly remember classmates of mine just absolutely freaking out about that, and they're like, this is it. Like, mm. I I told my family I love them before I left because we're not going to make it back today. And then uh, all that really happened out of that was Dan Brown wrote a historical uh, science fiction novel about the Catholic Church and the Illuminati and really kind of brought the Illuminati back because people wanted to pretend that they were in a secret society. So Dan Brown kind of, all he did was invent Dan Brown. If if a board 
peace-dwelling, kind of fat and happy civilization is like a kerosene-soaked rag. Dan Brown was a firecracker that was just lobbed in from a safe distance away and just ignited the whole thing. He is yeah. solely responsible for the rise of QAnon and Flat Earthers. I'm he really, convinced. 100%. He, well, him and National Treasure, but that was fun. We, we all yeah, liked na- that one. Okay, National, National Treasure was like the children's version. That was like yeah. the early indoctrination yeah. of this conspiracist horseshit <laughs> pervades society today. Mon dieu. Mon dieu. Okay, so Sam Marsh breaks into the particle accelerator. He steals a magnet. He puts it in the Pinewood Derby car. Boom, he bends time-space, and the alien's like, whoa, the humans are ready for our test. And here's the test, Chris, and this is a great game theory situation. Prisoner's dilemma. So an alien lands, and he's like, who sent out the thing? You guys have that kind of technology? I need that technology, and he holds the whole species hostage. And he's like, make it again. And Randy Marsh is trying to teach his son, don't lie. This is how you lie. Don't touch your neck. Don't look up. This is how you lie. So they're like, of course we can make remake this particle accelerator using only the pre-approved Pinewood Derby car kit and the kid's like no that's not what happened <laughs> <laughs> was like it's gonna work so they kill the alien and they're like and it turns out he was an alien crook and he had all this space cash and they're like okay so now we have all this space cash and then the space cops came in and they're like did you guys see a guy and it be, then it becomes Willy Wonka we're like they're like no we didn't see a guy we didn't see nothing we don't know nothing and they just split up the space cash they end up blowing up Finland because Finland wants to snitch on the cops. And at the end, the cops come out. And it turns out the bad guy was the, the, the space criminal wasn't a criminal. They're like, this was a test, you morons. You are not capable of being part of the multiverse. We're going to lock you in this box for like at least another couple of millennia. It was the same exact plot as Arrival. For, for, for people who haven't seen South Park, man, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, so it's it, the, the, what they can pack into 22 minutes is really astounding. I do have a clip right here of the uh, come to Jesus moment when the aliens land. What the hell are they talking about? These are not space cops. There is no space jail, and space cash is only worth what you as a planet decided oh it was worth. I mean, how stupid is your species? Space jail? Baby Fark McGee's axe? It was it's a trick? Whenever uh, a civilization discovers warp speed, we want to bring them into the Federation of Planets. Uh-oh. But first we do the space cash test. To- the space cash test, Chris. Uh, needless to say, the humans did not pass the space cast no. test. No, I, th- I think that's kind of consensus by this point. That if if we were faced with like any kind of collective challenge from aliens, whether it's like a fun little game or we have to like unite and save the species, like we we wouldn't. No I mean, chance. We couldn't. We we can't. We can't do that. Yeah. No chance. So uh, circling all the way back to the to the beginning of the discussion. It would be helpful probably when evaluating like the threat from aliens or like whether it would be useful to cooperate to know what the odds are of encountering aliens. So I think we should break down the components of the Drake equation. Yes. Just like list the list the factors here. So so we'll good news for everybody who's ever had a math class and been defeated by like the Greek alphabet, like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very, very simple equation. Like it's just a bunch of terms multiplied together. There's no square roots, there's no irrational numbers, there's none of that. Just numbers and fractions, just multiplied together. So the formula, if you if you look this up, uh, you know, I'm using the reference uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, the internet version, unfortunately. Uh, it looks something like this. Uh, N equals R star times F sub P times N sub E times F sub L times F sub I times F sub C times L. Yeah. So 
I've got it on the screen, Chris, by the way, if you're watching these, on YouTube. Subscribe each of these to these components are. Okay, so uh, our star is the mean rate of star formation in the galaxy. So like in the Milky Way, some number of stars is made at a certain rate, and we can kind of calculate that out. That's actually one of the terms that we probably know uh, best in this in this whole thing. You had a star somewhere. Right, exactly. Yeah, and we can we can just look. We got all kinds of telescopes and stuff. I mean, we got NASA and you know Hubble and and whatever else. Uh, F sub p, the first fraction, is the fraction of those stars that have planetary systems. So not every star in the galaxy is going to have a planetary system like the sun has the solar system. Yeah. Uh, so a certain percentage of stars will. Okay. N sub e is the number of planets in those systems. So this is just the systems that have planets. The number of planets that are ecologically suitable for the origin of life. And so generally the consensus is that's like carbon-based where water, like some kind of liquid can be used to transport like polar molecules and create you know, little organics and those organics eventually become like bacteria and stuff. All right, so like, let me jump in real quick. So first thing we've got is the, like, the average speed of how fast stars can happen. The yep. second thing we've got is the, the, the number of stars that have planets of those. So yep. like how fast of those, how many have planets of those, how many could potentially support life? Yep. And then at exactly. the, the next level of that is how many could support life that could develop into whatever this that, is, whatever that, that, whatever, actually, whatever that actually develops. Because because some planets have ecologically like friendly conditions. They're like, well, yeah. water or there's water here. Life should exist here, but it doesn't. Right. So there's another fraction that's like the percentage that that actually comes to bear. Uh, then there's another fraction that's F sub I. Uh, that's the planets on which there's suitable conditions for life. Life actually develops. And that life becomes intelligent. Yeah. So it could just be a bunch of bacteria or a bunch of plants or whatever. Like that's not intelligent life. It, 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 we're talking like beings with consciences and, and you know personhood. Yeah, and well, I mean, even kind of animals, right? Because if you believe in evolution, then then intelligent life is not that far away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then there's another fraction there. That's a fraction of such worlds that have all of the above in which intelligent life forms invent some kind of technology mm -hmm. capable enough of at least interstellar radio communication, like some way of blasting their existence right. out into the universe to let everybody know about it. Uh, and then finally, the last so, term here. Okay, so resetting again. L life is intelligent life. Lifetime, and then that intelligent life chooses to invent so, you know, the something that were is around technology. In different periods wants for, to have cell phones. Know, millions and millions of years. Yeah. Right, yeah, and, and, you know, they changed, like, certain species went extinct, and then others kind of took their place. Human beings have been around for, I don't know, ballpark 100,000 years. I don't, I, who keeps records that far back? 300,000. 300,000, okay. Yeah. Well, there's probably going to be an end point. You know, there, there'll be a day probably where humans aren't really walking around on Earth anymore. So, like, there's a finite lifespan in there. And so the question is, can any intelligent species that lives in a place that's suitable for all these conditions... Can they develop that technology fast enough and distribute it widely enough that some other intelligent species will overlap, receive the signal, and there'll be like some kind of communication with one another? Um, we can talk about some of the estimates, I guess, for like what some of the, the numbers might be. People have gotten here. Cause so I, I thought I heard that we have discovered three Earths. Like there's one Earth and then there are two other Earths. They're like, oh, yeah. There's, there's, like, a bun there's a bunch of like exoplanets and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And exoplanets, I think, is like, it, that's just like what, I've only ever seen NASA use that term to describe planets outside the solar system. So I'm going to say that's what it is. Yeah, and it's like, this, it's like the, what I'm talking about, 
and this has been a while since I looked this up, but they're like, uh, there are like a handful, like two or three other planets that have the current, we think, oxygenation and current temperature that theoretically if we could travel through space time, if we could like faster than light travel, we could go and go fuck up another planet with all of our gases. If there was a real problem, we've discovered one or two of them that would theoretically be suitable to that. Yeah, uh, well, I, that, that sounds reasonable. Uh, in 1961, we know what the figures were that Drake and his homies at the Astrological Society, or Astronomical Society, which one's the uh, the dumb one with the crystals and the uh, Ast- multi-level marketing? That's astrology. Uh, astrology, yeah. Multi-level yeah. marketing. Okay. All right, so whatever. All these astronomers <laughs> all uh, in 1961 recorded their like educated guesses for, for what the best guesses were. So for the rate of star formation, they just said one star per year. Um, that's just average lifespan of the galaxy. Uh, they said that was kind of a conservative estimate, but you know we got to start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, then for the fraction of stars with planets, they said about a quarter to half, maybe like like a fifth to a half. Uh, at most, 50% of stars have planets. Then for the number of planets, or stars with planets, uh, there's like one to five planets per star on those systems. Then there's a 100% chance of those planets developing life, they estimated. Uh, and then 100% of those planets that develop life will develop intelligent life. That's just what they what they assumed was reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the communication factors where they get really limiting. They assumed that only about 20% of intelligent life forms that come up, come to be on these planets would be able to communicate. Okay, really time out. Like, do we have any reasonable like data as to why that number would be that number? Well, as far as hard data, no. Right. Because There's 100% of the intelligent life on this planet has formed. We, we, we've, we've beamed so much stuff out into the cosmos. Like, we've shot out data that, like, pixelates little pictures of like humans and going to the stars and there's there's i i forget what the name of it is but there's like a big capsule that contains all kinds of stuff there's like you know like vinyl records and stuff that have audio files and like music and yeah uh like drawings of humans and numbers and alphabets and all that kind of stuff so we don't have any data to support that that's just a guess okay uh and then for the average lifespan of civilizations they had a pretty big range when they guessed this so they said these intelligent life Civil, these intelligent civilizations could last anywhere from a thousand to a hundred million years. Um, huh. <laughs> again, we have one data point and we have no way of like, I guess ours is like kind of in the middle of that somewhere. Yeah. If and you I guess it's logarithmic I mean, scale. It depends to me. So the equation gets weird for me when you start to think about how long civilizations last intelligent life and like intelligent life that could communicate because it, it, it all has to do with like the, your own specific known universe, right? We like, we know that wolves and whales and dolphins, they have like, we're pretty sure they have accents and they have words and things. And like a wolf can howl and within its ecosphere, it pings out. It does exactly what we're doing. It pings out to other wolves, right? And the wolves right, ping back, exactly. but the wolf is, it, it is, it has developed a mechanism to communicate within its known universe. So at what point are we like limiting ourselves to thinking that way? But the second, the other thing that I really think is kind of a weird crux in all of this is like, if we're, if we're predicating it on intelligent life versus intelligent life that can communicate, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, if you're defining intelligent life as understanding that you have existence, so like not like an animal, we think that two or three animals do like some primates and dolphins and cats kind of think they, they understand that they exist, but Outside of that, I kind of just said, like, 
a wolf and a dolphin and a whale, they can do all of the things that this is that is required for this to exist. So if dinosaurs lived for, you know, 70 million years or 300 million years, depending on how you define the dinosaur, that could, that number could be true as well, right? Right, yeah, and, and that's kind of what Drake and his colleagues concluded in 1961. So, so using the parameters that you and I just went through, they had a range of, like, what's the minimum number of, like, advanced civilizations out there and what's the maximum number? And just with that range, mm-hmm. uh, the calculation gives a minimum of 20, so at least 20 other alien species out there. And then the more liberal estimates that, you know, are a lot more generous, uh, they give a maximum of 50 million. Mm-hmm. So could be a lot. Uh, but then Drake points out, you know, obviously there's a ton of uncertainty here. Like a status, like the statisticians out there that are listening to this are rolling over in their premature graves because there's so much uncertainty from one data point. Yeah. And so Drake and his colleagues kind of concluded that the number N that we're looking for, the number of civilizations, is kind of roughly equal to the lifespan factor because all that other stuff is probably close to like one. And so that means, conservatively speaking, there are probably between a thousand and more liberally speaking, a hundred million planets with civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. Of course, that was in 1961. Yeah. All that has changed since then. We know a lot more about star formation. We know a lot more about intelligent life, the process of life formation uh, than they did in the 1960s. And using some different parameters that we won't go into, uh, there's a, a different range of kind of reasonably considerable minimum, minima and maxima. Mm-hmm. Uh, so using really conservative estimates, okay, uh, there is a solution with reasonable numbers that comes out to the number being 9.1 times 10 to the minus 13. What that means is that's 0.0000000000091 species. In so other words, us. we're alone. Like, that's us. it. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the we're alone assessment. On the other end of that, using the higher end numbers, we've calculated a reasonable maximum of 15,600,000. So pretty pretty big possibility there and and you you know you could you could do some simulations here with yeah. with like random number generators and stuff and get some pretty different uh d- different ranges and stuff but I, I guess you know apparently all the all the statistical simulations with like monte carlo analysis uh they've kind of resulted in the number of civilizations factoring uh, varying by a factor of 100 so mm, you know th- when you got 15 million then a factor of 100 brings you down to, what, 156,000? So still a huge number. So either we're alone or there's a lot, and we arrive right back where we started. Which is they might exist. Right. Sort of. So are you familiar with the the great filter? The great filter. Uh, Well, unless you're referring to the refrigerator filter that I just got replaced today, no. Not. It's not coffee either. So... The gray filter is a theory that it, it came as a result of the the Fermi, I keep calling it a complex, it's a fair paradox, the Fermi paradox. And it's the idea that biologically, we are such an accident that it's not possible even to replicate ourselves because it's a result of oxygenation. It's a result of very specific moment in time. Like, because you can Google this, there are like, there are fossils. You can see giant sloths and giant bears and giant spiders that were like 13 feet 
um, because of the amount of oxygen in the air was so huge that animals grew bigger. There were sloths that were much, much bigger than grizzly bears today. Sloths. Yeah, they're like, they're like the size of like camper trailers. You're enormous. Huge. And like the bears, dire wolves, the last dire wolf died like recently. Like there could, yeah. like people have theorized that there might still be a couple out there. Like there, those are died recently, saber-toothed tigers and things. So as a result of like us coming along, like we could not have come along, but for like an ice age. Right. Like in there. Yeah, the, right. And so the so great much, filter so much is right had to happen. And at the right like time. Right. It's such a fluke. Yeah. And you think like, uh, I, I buy in, I don't get into it and make this a mermaid episode, but I do buy into the idea of aquatic apes. Um, because our evolution, like our relationship with water is so confounding and babies know how to float naturally and that's not normal. Most mammals will drown. Um, so like everything, every well, aspect but the, of... But the trade-off of that is that most other mammals know how to like walk within Correct. minutes and babies are basically useless until they turn 18 and start making money for the household. <laughs> Did you know, do you, do you know the theory of uh, why we're so useless and can't roll over and our, there's a hole in our head? I thought it was because uh, it just takes more energy to like develop the complex neuron connections to make you conscious. No. Our brain, this is the theory, and it's like anthropologists are pretty certain about this. Our brain is so much bigger than the rest of our body that it, it evolved so much faster while our need for our bodies got smaller that the skull is so thick and dense that on delivery it would obliterate a female vaginal canal and they would die. Like the species would end. So our adaptation is that we're born perhaps nine months prematurely and we have to finish our gestation outside the womb because our brains would kill our moms. See, now it sounds like scientists are blaming women for all of our problems. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, well, like, that and that's, be, the that theory is like, other, other mammals don't have the hole in their heads because like... They haven't fixed, like not being able to roll over and like the constant screaming and stuff. That is like post-exital gestation because if our brains had fully developed, if we had more development the way that horses do and other mammals do, because our brains are so thick and the skull is so intense, like the rest of like babies can like flex and stuff, but the brain is like thick. That um, is fascinating. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, that's, so that's sort of the, and it's kind of like a thing that people are accepting, which is sort of proof that this is, the fact that we're asking these questions about aliens means that, I mean, I kind of subscribe to the fact that I think it, other conditions could exist, right? If you believe in the plurality of the multiverse, theoretically, this can happen again infinitely at any, but at any point in time. But I absolutely subscribe to the idea that if we're asking these questions and these questions haven't been asked upon us, either we're in a race right now with another species or we are the species. Yeah, yeah, that, like that's that's a reasonable thing to to assume. So even understanding that, Nick, I have a trivia question for you. Hit me. When is the best time to start an interstellar journey? Uh, if you were gonna, if you were gonna go to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, from Earth, at this moment, when is the best time for you to start? So if so, my goal is to end at a point out in another galaxy. No, it's in this galaxy. It's like okay, our neighboring it, star. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Not a nerd. <laughs> so uh, the next, you want to go to the house next door. My goal is to get there as fast as I, as I possibly can, right? That's what you're asking me? Yeah. My f initial instinct is like, well, I mean, I'm not going to quote Yogi Bear, but quote Yogi Bear, you get there, you to get there earlier, you leave later. Yeah. Right. right. Avoid yeah, yeah, traffic. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah that, that's actually kind of the point. Like, you don't yeah. start right now. The best time is like 40 years in the future when we've developed actual fast space travel. Oh, God. I'm not going to credit you with the right answer there. Uh, yeah, well, it was, it was Yogi Bear. Chris, I want to do recommendations as we get out of here. This is this cool liquor I have. It's like a liquor drink if you look into the camera right there. Striver's mm-hmm. Distillery. It's in a warehouse in Philadelphia. When I rolled up to buy it, there's just two dudes, one of which works with... Uh, he is the spouse of someone who works with my wife, and he's just sitting out there, and he's like, handed it to me in a bag. I'm like, okay, hope I don't get shot. So far, I was so deep into North Philly. Can't recommend it enough. Striver's Distillery. It's like a bourbon drink, and it's got like a like a little itty bitty like orange aroma to it. It's unbelievable. It sounds delicious. Nick, I'm going to recommend High West. It's my favorite distillery in these Utah. United States. Absolutely. I'm not drinking any tonight because I'm saving it for the weekend. It's great <laughs> with cocktails, great with mixed drinks, but it's also great by itself. No matter what you get, they have Rendezvous Rye, they have a Double Rye, they have American Prairie Bourbon, they have all kinds of incredible blends i've never had a drink that i didn't love that came out of the high west distillery i do love high High west distillery like rate review subscribe to this episode make your friends listen we really appreciate it five star reviews we will address it every show has a poll and a prompt in spotify so if you listen to spotify you just pull up your phone like if you're getting mad at us like hey idiots think this you don't even have to find us on twitter or on youtube you can pull it up on spotify and just bitch at us right there we totally invite that kind of thing all right chris i'm gonna go contemplate the meaning of life and try not to freak myself out as I as I go to sleep now. And I'm going to start my apology letter to the CIA for absolutely scooping them on this one. 